You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Ephesians chapter 2, indeed, is where we are today. We are studying through the book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter and verse by verse here on our Sunday mornings. On Wednesday nights, we're studying through Exodus in the same manner, so if you find yourself available, come out on Wednesday nights at 6.30 for more Bible study as we are tackling the book of Exodus. We are in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We'll be working our way through verses 1 through 10, and if you are taking notes today, the title for this message is From Death to Life, From Death to Life, and as we study any book of the Bible, we like to make sure to have a good grip on what we're studying, the background and the the themes within it. And we remind ourselves of these things as we study the book throughout. And uh, when it comes to the book of Ephesians, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote this book. It was a letter originally to the church in Ephesus. And the theme of this book we've come to find is really all pertaining to Jesus Christ and the church to Jesus Christ in the church, his church, his body, because it belongs to him. He is the head. And that is what the book of Ephesians all focuses on. And we break it down into three sections, looking at the church doing some various things as they are in Christ. And the first one spans the first three chapters, which is seeing the church sitting in Christ. This is looking at the position that the church has in Jesus, all the blessing and the belonging that comes along with a relationship with him. But then after that, in chapters 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, we see the church not sitting in Christ, but then walking in Christ, where Paul takes all of the information, the doctrine, and the truths that he expounds on in chapters 1 through 3, and he lays them out for the believer to then do according to, to live out their faith, to walk in Jesus Christ, and put some real application to their walk and their faith. And then the last section is that of standing in Christ, seeing the church standing in Christ in in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, where Paul takes uh, some verses there at the end of the book to hone in on spiritual warfare. A fact of the Christian life is that we are engaged in spiritual war, and that's a reality that the church needs to be aware of. But what we can know and what Paul seeks to say is that as we are in that spiritual war, well, we stand with the Lord. Not only do we stand with and in Him, but we stand equipped in and by Him. And we see that through those verses. And we'll make sure to remind ourselves of these as we study. And as we started the book of Ephesians a couple of weeks ago and made our way through the first chapter, we have seen Paul speaking on the subject of the church, again, sitting positionally in Christ. And he took all of chapter 1 to really just praise the Lord, to praise the Lord and to pray for the Ephesian church in their position that they hold in Jesus. Speaking there in verses 3 through 14, which in the Greek is one run, long run-on sentence, he just speaks about the blessing of belonging to Christ and the fact that the whole Trinity is involved in that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all intricately involved in the life and the salvation of the believer. But then last week, if you were with us, if you weren't, go back and listen online. Paul continues to praise the Lord and gives insight to the church on how he was praying for them, on how he was praying specifically for the Ephesians. And it started with him being thankful, thankful for the fact that they had a great active faith that was noticed and notable. Also, they had a love for all the saints. And he showed and told how he was praying for them to continue to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ, to know more about him so as to live for him and to take a hold of the hope, the riches, and the power that are all found in a relationship with him. 
But having said all that and laid all of that out, Paul, as we begin chapter 2 now, he has praised the Lord openly to the Ephesians. But now what he does is he takes a step back. He takes a step back. We're having blessed the Lord and given insight into his prayers. He now wants to make sure that all of the church that he's writing to, that they have a firm grasp on the truth of what makes them so blessed in Jesus. What is the true reason for the praise and all of the, all of the worship from the position that they now hold in Christ? Why is that so significant? Paul wants to tell them. And we see Paul do that in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. He shows the reader where they were before Christ, reminding them of their position outside of a relationship with Jesus. But then he wants to show where they are now in Christ and then how that is all accomplished, reminding them of the basic truth of their salvation and their position in Jesus, giving them and us now as we read insight to the depth of the blessing that a relationship with Jesus Christ, that it truly holds. And that's what we see today as we study these verses. And it all starts with the first three verses that we're going to read today as Paul lays out, again, where the believer was before Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, let's open up there in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. We're going to pray one more time after that, and then we'll keep going. So Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirits who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord, this day that you have made and we can rejoice, we can be glad in it, Lord, and I thank you for all of these that have come out to do just that. As we have worshiped you, Lord, with our voices and with songs, Lord, that all just speak of who you are. God, I just thank you. I thank you that we can sing to you and, Lord, just offer up our worship to you. And I also thank you that we can continue to worship you, Lord, as we study your word, knowing that this is worship. And God, you desire to speak to us and lead us. And I thank you for that. Thank you, God, for the Bible, Lord, that we have just this extension of your kindness to study and to know and Lord, to live our lives according to it. And Lord, as we seek to read today, Lord, this great passage from your word about, Lord, you bringing us from death to life. God, I pray that it would just be so real to us, that you would speak to everyone here, that God, you would help us to understand the truth of your word, that we may know it, but also too, that we may live it and live according to it. And God, I just thank you again for everyone that's here, everyone online. Lord, would you help us all to understand your word? I ask that expectantly, Lord, knowing that you desire to help us. And so help us now by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand what you say and to pattern our lives in light of it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, to truly show the blessing of being alive in Jesus Christ, Paul again takes the reader back. He takes them back, back to the fact that apart from Jesus, every person is dead in sin. They're dead in sin. And though he opens up again saying, and you he made alive, though the believer is now alive, they must never, we must never as believers forget where they, where we came from. Understand that as he writes to the church in Ephesus, he wants them to know that they were dead in trespasses and sin. In fact, that is the same place that all of humanity is naturally at since the fall and sin entering in the world, what we see in Genesis chapter 3. All people are born dead in their sin and their trespasses. 
And though it may seem basic, and in fact, there are several basic things that we will make note of today, though it may seem basic, it does us well today as we read this and see this to see and define exactly what Paul means when he says trespasses and sin, because though they are lumped together, they are distinct. They are. And whenever we talk about trespasses and sin, we need to understand what they mean. And to trespass for you note takers, well, it speaks of a crossing of a line willingly. It is seeing a boundary that is clearly defined and challenging that boundary. It is crossing something that is clearly marked to not be crossed without authorization or at all. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed driving around here. My wife and I did one time. It was shortly after moving back to Paris that around here in, in, on the countryside, outside of the city, there are, there are fence posts that abound everywhere. And some of them, some of the fence posts and some of the trees, they have purple painted on them. And, and we saw that enough to where we were like, what, what is that? And so like any good millennial, we Googled it to see what it looked like and what it meant. And come to find out, to see purple painted on a fence post or on a tree, it means no trespassing. And I know that trespassing is meant to be, you know, clearly seen, and that's not very clear to me. So I'm very thankful I didn't cross that and, you know, end up not being alive or anything like that. And so you now know if you see purple on a fence post, don't go past it without authorization. And that is what trespassing is. It is, again, just going across a boundary, knowing where the boundary is, but still doing it. To sin, however, which is an archery term originally, well, that just speaks of failure, of, you could say, missing the mark. When an archer would come to, come to the line and shoot at the target, seeing the bullseye, but yet would miss the mark, that would be called a sin. And sinning speaks of just that when it comes to our relationship with the Lord and with his standard. It is seeing the mark, seeing the standard, but yet falling short of it. And these two terms, speaking of the fallenness of humanity, well, they are linked, but again, they are distinct. But Paul uses them brilliantly and appropriately here together to show the utter fallenness, again, of humanity, the fallenness of the world. And it is this fallen state that Paul says the now believer in Christ once walked according to. In fact, he elaborates on it showing that there are in fact three distinct ways that the believer, the now believer, once walked according and in opposition to the Lord. He says that you first, that believers first walked according to the course of this world. He says that those who are alive in Christ and who are called to walk with him, well, they once walked in opposition to him as they walked in the course of this world. And that is that they walked according to and in line again with the fallenness of this world. And again, as basic as, as it may be, I, I probably don't need to say this. Many of you know it. In fact, you just walk out the door and you can see this. But it's worth reminding ourselves today that this world that we live in, it is fallen. It is fallen. It is not perfect. It was, however, created perfect in the beginning. If you're reading the one-year Bible with us, we're in the book of Genesis. And as you start the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as he did so, he created it perfectly. Everything worked harmoniously together with God and each other. However, it didn't take very long. In fact, just three chapters into the Bible for sin to enter the world. And all the things that were perfectly made, they spiraled into a place that was outside of perfection. The world is fallen. And the world, the society of this world would seek to say that this world is getting better, that humanity is growing and evolving and getting better. However, the Bible would show that is not the case. Understand, we live in a fallen world. The course of this world is no longer seeking to glorify God naturally, 
but rather is to oppose and continually separate from God. It's why John the Apostle, as he was writing there in 1 John, tells the reader not to love the world. As he speaks to believers in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, he says, For all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he says, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And as he's speaking to believers the same way Paul is, he says here, And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. They were on the same wavelength here of seeing the world as being fallen. And everyone who is born into this world naturally is apart from Jesus and walks according naturally to the course of this world. But not only just according to the course of this world that has fallen, but also to the satanic influence that is present in this world. What does he say again in verse 2? He says, they walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Now that's what the New King James Version says, the version of the Bible I teach out of primarily. However, the New Living Translation puts this quite succinctly as well. It'll be on the screen where Paul says, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. Very plain, very, very clear. He says he's the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And you know, when we put it that way, it's quite clear that that's not a way that the church talks very often any longer. However, I think that they should. Because as Paul speaks here, he puts it very plainly. He's saying that everyone who is apart from Jesus, who is not in a relationship with him, well, they are walking in obedience under the rule of Satan in this world, obeying the desire he has for their life and not the desire that God has for their life. That is the natural space and place that a person operates in in this fallen world. And so in accordance with this world, with the satanic influence that's in this world, but also, he says, they walk according to the lusts of the flesh. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, dead in sin and trespasses, we do not seek to please God, but rather naturally, we seek to please ourselves, to please the flesh. And any time within the word of God where we see it speak of the flesh in this way, well, it's talking about the natural carnal man or woman living a lifestyle that's apart from Jesus Christ, a lifestyle that seeks to build up oneself, to feel good, to look good, to serve self over everything and everyone else. That is the natural state of all mankind, of all people apart from the Lord. The flesh desires to see itself pleased and built up. And so all of these things, as we look at this, and Paul shares that you walked according to the course of this world, according to the course of the satanic influence in this world, and according to the flesh, well, he says that it gets you one thing. He says there in the last part of verse 3, and that as a result of this, we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And again, what Paul is doing here is he's showing those who are now alive in Christ where they were before Jesus. And apart from a relationship with Jesus, all humanity is, because of their sin, sin nature, not children of God, but rather children of wrath. Again, something the church largely steers away from, but needs to be clear on more often than they are, is the fact that all of humanity is not naturally in the favor of God. God loves all of humanity. That's why Jesus came to save all of humanity. 
But that does not mean and that does not equate to the same thing as us being in the favor of the Lord or under the favor of the Lord in our natural sinful states. Because understand that the natural man, as we are born into this world, we are separated from God by our sin nature and by the sin and the trespasses that we commit. All of the world, apart from Jesus Christ, is under the wrath of God because of sin. And that does include every single one of us in this room, because every single one of us in this room, we're all sinners. That's just the fact of the matter. The reality is you are born in this world a sinner separated from God, no matter what family you were born into, no matter how you were brought up, no matter how better you think you are than the person you're sitting next to right now or that person on your list at work, you and I, in our natural state, we are sinners separated from Jesus Christ. All of humanity is that. And that's what we see in Romans 3.23. As Paul writing there says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, all have missed the mark. All have trespassed. All have crossed the purple paint is what Paul is sharing here. And apart from, from Christ, there is wrath and judgment, righteous wrath and righteous judgment from a righteous and holy God. And I know that if that was the end of the message today, that it would be true, but it would be a bummer. Man, you would just come here and be like, I'm never coming there again. That is, dude's just a downer. That, and it would be a bummer. I would not blame you. But thankfully, we continue to, to read on. And thankfully, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and the Word of God shows us as well that that is not where God wanted to leave humanity. In fact, what do we see? Having shown the world and the believer as being apart from Christ, to be dead in sin and under wrath, well, Paul now, as he moves on, he moves on to share the biggest and the best but God in all of the Bible. Will you pick up with me there in verse 4, where he says, But God, who is rich and mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, I had a pastor friend of mine, he, he called me this week to, to talk for a little bit, and he asked what I was teaching on this week. And when I told him it was this passage, and told him it was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, his words exactly were, bro, that is the biggest and the best but in the entire Bible. And I'd have to agree with him, that this right here, it's absolutely true. That when all of the world and all of humanity is lost under the wrath of God, the very truth of the Bible is, that is where we are naturally at. We see the truth of God desiring to show the richness of his mercy in the lives of humanity. My friends, that is absolutely amazing. That is an amazing truth for us to see and read and to take hold of today. Again, Paul says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not seeking him, when we were dead in our trespasses, far from him, the Bible says enemies of God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. See, God in his mercy and because of his love saw it, saw it fit to take us from death to life, making us alive together with Jesus. And the language here is this resurrection type of language. The same way that Jesus, he died and was buried and then was resurrected. Well, so too is the believer having new life in Jesus, taken from the old life of sin and death and resurrected to new life, out of the bondage of sin, out of the bondage of the flesh and to this world and to the devil. 
See, because of God's great mercy and love, we are brought into this new life. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he would say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, brand new creation, brand new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things, he says, have become new. And that is the place and space of a believer in Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. He desired to bring us from that place. And then Paul expounds on this further. He expounds further saying that we have been raised up together and sat together in the heavenly places in Christ. And this is amazing because what this does is it speaks of our being seen in Jesus Christ now. And this is important to get because oftentimes when we think of our salvation, when we think of our relationship with the Lord, we appropriately but often exclusively look forward to heaven. We look forward to being with the Lord one day in heaven, which is going to be amazing. Again, we have this inheritance that's wrapped up where we know heaven's going to be cool, but we have no real idea of what it's going to be like. And so we can just hope and wait for it. But we don't have to just look forward to heaven one day to sit in all that God has for us today. Because understand, we are raised up together and we are sat together in the heavenly places in Christ, meaning that we are identified with Jesus today. We're not going to be just identified with him one day when we're with him in heaven. No, we can live as those that are saved and positionally with him today. And we should. We should, as believers, be living in the identity that we have in Jesus and all that's wrapped up in it, because it's truly amazing. And then Paul continues on, and then says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And this right here speaks of in eternity. This right here speaks of the reality that as we live for Jesus today, and as we get to heaven one day, we'll see him fully. I believe fully the Bible shows us that God's just going to reveal more of himself to us for all eternity. Like we're going to learn so much about God as we are in his presence immediately, but we're just going to continue to learning to learn him. We're just going to continue our learning forever as we are in his presence one day. And Paul here writes about that, that he looks to the future and the eternity that we have with the Lord. How as we are saved with him and with him more and more, we are with him, we will see him and know him more fully. And if you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I, we need to understand and never forget it is because of God's great mercy and his love that has seen it fit to save us. It is that which has seen fit to save us, which makes us saved. It is because of his grace that he saw it fit to not leave humanity in death, to not leave us under the wrath that we were all sitting under, but to send his only begotten son into the world because of his great love for the world, that Jesus would come to this world as a baby, would grow into a man and live a life, a perfect life, but then die a criminal's death, a death that we deserve, that he did not deserve, taking the punishment for our sin upon himself and then going to the grave, but then resurrecting to life. What an amazing truth. And he did that to take away the penalty of our sin and to give us exactly what Paul is speaking about here, this living hope that we have in him. And Paul shares this again with the church in Ephesus of God taking them from death to life. And he does this again to us to show them where they were, where they are now, and the reason to praise the Lord, the reason to walk in the Lord as the days ahead of them present themselves. The same thing for us. But he ends this little section, and so do we, by expounding on the grace and the salvation of God, showing them very clearly 
that new life in Christ, well, it is found by grace through faith. Let's read there in verse 8 together. As he says, therefore, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, taking the church all the way through from death to life. Paul, what he does now is he gives one of the most concise views of the gospel and the way of salvation in Scripture. And walking it through, we see that the first thing he says is it is by grace that you have been saved. And grace, again, is another word that we in the church, we know it and we throw it around, but it does us good to remember exactly what it means, what it signifies And it speaks, understand, of the unmerited favor of God. It speaks of the unmerited favor of God. You see, there's no reason for God to love us. He does, but there's no reason for him to do so. No reason for him to want to save humanity, which is counter to our thinking. Because we like to think, we like to have in our brains that God would save us because we're us. We're amazing. Look at me. Look at you. You're amazing people. Why would God not want to save us? But understand it is his unmerited favor. We have nothing to offer. Even further than that, we have nothing to sweeten the deal when it comes to salvation. Because if we don't think that God doesn't, shouldn't just save us, and why, why would that ever be a question? We definitely think, well, okay, now that God has saved me, why wouldn't he use me, right? Like God needs me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us. We have nothing to bring to the table, nothing to sweeten the deal when it comes to our salvation. But yet God, he extends grace to us as we are in our rebellion and our sin. His unmerited favor gives us the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it makes salvation available to all of us. And so we are saved by grace. But as that grace and salvation are extended, it is ours personally, Paul goes on, through faith. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And faith is another common word that we use, but we should know what it means. It speaks of both belief and trust, of belief and trust. And we often equate it to belief. We have no problem with that. Yeah, my faith is my belief in God, my belief in Jesus. But faith also, well, it necessitates trust as well. Like right now, you are exercising faith. You've been since you sat down. You believe that the chair was going to hold you up and it has continued to hold you up and you are continuing to trust in that. In a little bit, you'll get in your car and you'll drive to lunch and you're going to believe that as you get there, your car is going to turn on, but you're going to trust that it gets you all the way down the road. Some of you more than others. And as you trust your vehicle, as you drive that, as you drive that, and as you live your life, the faith that we exercise in Jesus is kind of the same. It's not the same, but it's kind of the same. Or understand that as we believe in the finished work of Jesus, that's where it starts the shedding of his blood, the forgiveness it offers. We need to believe in that as we cry upon the Lord to save us. But then we also need to trust that he is gonna save us. We need to trust that that work is able to save us and able to sustain us as well. You see, faith that we put in Jesus Christ, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just this one and done, I believe and I trust and I'm good and I'll see you in heaven. No, it's an everyday living with Jesus, exercising our faith in him believing who he is and trusting that he's going to do what he says he will. It is God's grace that saves, but it is by faith that we accept that grace. 
And we accept it as from him, not from us. That's what he goes on to say. He says, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And he wants to be very clear on this, as do I. And he says it here, simply what he's doing is he's pointing to the fact that the salvation that we receive by faith is not something from within ourselves. We can do nothing. We can do nothing. You and I, we can do nothing to save ourselves. We do nothing to reconcile ourselves back to God. There's no effort or system, no work, nothing but the grace of Jesus Christ and our faith put in that. That is what saves. There's no work that we can do to do so. And we accept it. And as we accept it, we accept it as it is, as a gift that's extended to us. And to make sure that we are clear on it, what we need to know is this gift that he speaks of, the gift it pertains to the salvation that is extended. The, the gift, some get it wrong and some like to confuse it and think that it is, it is the grace or it is the faith. No, understand, it is salvation all wrapped up. That is what Paul is speaking about here is that the salvation is a gift from God that is extended to us by the grace of God, and we receive it by faith put in that. And Paul here writes that, that, is what it, that that's what we should see. And just like a gift should be, it's not something, again, that works gain. Not of works, he says, lest anyone should boast. And I've already mentioned that there's no work, no efforts, and part that we play that gains that, that we have to work for. And God, he sets it up that way. He absolutely does because he knew first off that we couldn't save ourselves. Like God knew that as we were separated from him, as we are lost, there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to work for our salvation. He knew that. But he also knew that if we could, we wouldn't need him. He knew that if we could, if we could save ourselves, we wouldn't need the Lord. Why would we need the Lord? We would boast and be prideful. Pride would be the posture of our life, not surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. And so salvation is a gift from God. There's nothing that we can do to earn it that will ever satisfy or give it to us. It is a gift that's extended by his grace, seen in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this right here is something so important for us to understand, to have, and to hold on to. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And Paul, as he says this again, he's reminding the church of what has brought them again from death to life, from the lost state, being enemies with God, to the reconciled joint heirs with Jesus Christ state that they are currently, that we in this room who are saved are currently in. He wants them to understand, to know, and to live according to it. That the believer is brought from death to life, from bondage to freedom in Christ, seated with him. And Paul, as he lays all this out, again, the reason for his praising, he ends this little section with verse 10. Read it with me again. As he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, Paul has shown that it is not works that saves. But he also wants to make sure that he shows that God has a plan for those that are saved. That is a plan for the life of the believer. And he sees the believer in a light that is very special. He says that we are his workmanship. That word in the Greek is the Greek word poema. And it's the word from which we get our English word poem. But it speaks of more than just a poem, though that would be sufficient. It speaks of any fine work of arts or craftsmanship. 
And understand that in Jesus Christ, this is where the believer sits. This is how the believer is viewed. Seated in Christ is as God's workmanship. This great work of art, this great constructed person, this, this, this person that he has a plan for, that he sees as special and wanting to send into this world for his glory. Not because, again, he needs us, but because he wants us. The Lord doesn't need us. He doesn't need to save us, but he desires to. And he doesn't need to use us, but he wants to include us. And Paul here says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has a plan for every single person in this world, every single person in this room right now. If you've never been told this before, I'm going to tell you now, and I pray that you would receive it as from the Lord, because the word of God shows us this time and time again, that God has a plan for your life. He values you and loves you and wants to save and use you, every single one of us. He desires that. And Paul says these things, speaking to the Ephesians, saying that we are brought from death to life by the grace of God being extended, by our faith, our belief, and our trust being put in that, and then our lives being patterned according to it. God desires that for all of us. And as we read this, what Paul wrote to the Ephesians over 2,000 years ago, it's something that presents to us an option, really options, I guess you could say. As we look at our own life, and as you look at your own life, understand that the Bible is very clear. That in a relationship with Jesus, you are either in one or you are not. You are either, the Bible shows us today, you are either dead or you're alive. You're either dead in your trespasses and sin, what all of us are naturally born into, or you are alive in the finished work of Jesus Christ and your faith put in that, the grace extended you are either dead or alive. And, and there's no, we need to be clear on this, there's no gray. Like it's black and white. The Bible is black and white in so many ways that we try to make it gray in a lot of them. But this right here, there is no gray. You are either dead or you are alive. You're not just kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of alive. I'm just kind of limping along and one day I'll get to heaven and be okay. God will be like, oh, poor thing. Yeah, come on in. No, you are in Jesus, alive or you are outside of a relationship with him, dead. That is the truth. And what that does is, again, presents an option to either stay dead or to be made alive by the finished work of Jesus Christ. To either stay dead or be made alive in the finished work that he offers to us, that he took upon himself for us, knowing everything about us, every failure, every bit of rebellion, everything. God knew it, and yet he still said, I love you and I want you. And Jesus died so that that could be a possibility. And so you can either stay dead or you can be made alive by Jesus Christ. And if you today are dead, as the Bible would say so, then today is a great day to be saved because you're here, you're alive. You have not entered into the eternal state, which understand apart from Jesus Christ is a state that is eternally separated from him, ultimately in a, in a very real place called hell. And so today is a great opportunity to be saved because this is the day to be saved. God has given you this day to cry out to him, to put your faith in him and to trust him for salvation. And if that's you, I encourage you to do so. But perhaps today I said that there are options presented to us and there's only one option to be saved. That's through Jesus Christ. But perhaps today you are saved. You're in a relationship with him. And you see this and you realize, yes, I've been brought from death to life. Praise the Lord. I am in Jesus Christ. Yes, I am no longer dead. That's great. But you also need to remember that you are his workmanship, created for good works. 
that God had planned beforehand, that you and I would walk in them glorifying Him, showing Him to the world around us. And so today you may be saved and headed for heaven, but God didn't save you to sit. God didn't save you and I to sit idly by and just wait for heaven, just punch the ticket and get there. No, He saved us with a plan in mind of how He could use us. And today I want to ask you if you are saved in this room, are you alive and active or are you alive and sedentary? Because if you're sedentary, you're not going all the way with what God has for your life. God has so much in store for you, so much that he desires for you to do, walking with him out of the old life, away from sin, away from the bondage of sin that he saved you out of, and into new life and onto mission, serving him and showing him to the world around you. And whatever that world looks like, hey, he wants to use you there. You know, it starts in your home. If you have a family at home with you, hey, that's where God wants to use you. You're wondering, how does God want to use me? He wants to use you there. If you live alone, then it's your neighbors or the people you spend the most time with at your workplace, whatever it may be, wherever you are regularly, God wants to use you there. And you and I, we need to be willing to do that. If he's brought us from death to life, we need to live like we're alive. We need to walk as if we are alive in Jesus, knowing that he is faithful to equip us and to lead us as we do so. And so today, perhaps you're not dead, you're alive in Jesus, but you're sedentary. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. Ask the Lord how he wants to use you. Ask the Lord the plan that he has for your life. And if you ask him, he will tell you. If you ask him, he will show you. So many times I get the question, how do I know God's will for my life? Ask him, read your Bible and pray every single day and seek the Lord. He will show you and he will lead you and be with you every step of the way. But friends, understand that as Paul writes this and the word of God speaks to us, the option that's presented to us is for us to take personally and to apply personally. I I can't make the decision for you no more than you can make it for me. And so today, if you're dead in sin, cry out to God. He is willing and faithful to save. If you are saved and alive, are you moving? If you're not, do so. And know that God has a plan for you and desires to lead you every step of the way, showing him to those that are in this room, because that's where it starts. But then also, too, out there, as we go from the seat to the door and on into the mission fields, the Lord wants to lead our lives and use us. But we, we have to make the choice to be used, to be made alive, and to walk with Him as He wants to lead us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You so much for this day. God, I thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. What we see within your word, Lord, it's such a great passage indeed. That same friend of mine this this past week is telling me that this sermon really just writes itself as you read this text. And I agree. Because God, what we see in here is again, the truth about humanity, that we are dead and separated from you in our natural sinful state. But yet you saw it fit to save, to extend salvation out of your great love. God, I just thank you for that. I thank you for the work that you've done Lord, selfishly in my life, the work that you've done in my brother and sister's life here, Lord, seeing and knowing so many here that you have done a work in. But yet, God, I do pray for anyone here today that needs to have that same saving work done in their life. And I pray that, God, you would speak so clearly to them and also so clearly just the reality that you make it so easy for us. You did all the work. All we have to do is put our faith in the grace that's extended. You made it so simple and that we see that it involves what we see there in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, one, believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Lord, I thank you for that. That our faith and our confession, Lord, seeking after you and to apply that word, God, you make it available. And I pray today for anyone here that needs to apply that to their life for the first time, to go from being dead to being alive. God, would you do that work in their heart? May they be willing to receive that. And I also pray, God, for all of us in here that do have a relationship with you, that we would see whether we are moving or if we're sedentary. We would see, Lord, whether we are living as that workmanship, walking in the working that you have for us, or if we're just sitting idly by waiting for heaven. Lord, that's not what you saved us for. You saved us to glorify you through the salvation you give us and then also into the mission that you call us to. And I pray that, Lord, today we would be awakened to that reality, maybe for the first time or as a reminder and see what you want to do through your church. Whatever it is today, God, I pray that as we worship now, that you would speak so clearly and lead us, Lord, in the way to respond that we need to. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And in a moment, we're going to sing about God's amazing grace, what we've been reading about all this morning, studying. But this is a time not just to look forward to the door and to lunch, but to look forward to what God wants to do in your heart right now. Perhaps he wants to. He is speaking to you right now. You are dead, separated from him, but you don't have to stay there. In a moment, there'll be men and women around the room. If you'd like to talk to someone about that, they'd love to talk to you. If you would like to just cry out to God where you are, he will hear you. The altars are open for you to come up here and bow before the Lord, to cry out to him for salvation. Do that between you and the Lord. Respond to him as he calls. But also too today, perhaps you are saved, but you're just looking for heaven. Sedentary, don't stay there. The Lord has so much for you. 